Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. My name is Julius Bülow. After long eight weeks, we are back on our bi-weekly schedule. And as you can see, we are now on our own channel, Talking the Cure by Hogan Lovells, which is a great development for us. And of course, we branch out. So you can find us now on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Deezer, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many, many more. Please subscribe so you are not missing out on any future episodes. Anyhow, today I'm sitting down with our new partner, former Bristol Myers Squibb Vice President John Wasserman, and I don't want to spoil anything, but his career is really impressive, and I really enjoy talking to him about it. Since we are going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping, without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi John, thank you for joining me on Talking the Cure today. Before we dive in and learn more about you and your move to Hogan Lovells, could you just take the stage for a couple of minutes and just introduce yourself and um, tell us what you do with Hogan Lovells? Thanks, Julius. I'm really excited to be on your podcast today and really excited to be at, at Hogan Lovells. Just a bit about my practice. Uh, I come out of the life sciences industry and have been there for some period of time and looking forward to talking about that. But But I expect my practice will continue to be in the life sciences space in litigation, arbitrations, and other areas that are that are affected in the uh, in the pharma and other life sciences spaces. And I want to dive directly into that. Obviously, we're going to link your CV in the description of this episode. But you have a super interesting work history, and you come out of the industry, joining Hogan Lovell. So, can you guide us a little bit through your career? Sure. So I. After law school, I graduated from Washington University School of Law out in the Midwest in, in 1992, and I joined the Justice Department, um, and I was with the U.S. Justice Department for three years, and while I was there, I did appellate work, and so it was incredibly exciting for a freshly graduated law student, a lawyer, traveling the country and, and arguing in courts of appeals for the first three years of my career. And, and frankly, one of the sort of the pinnacles of my career is being, was being able to stand up and say, it may it please the court, my name is John Wasserman, and I represent the United States of America. And it's really sort of heady stuff for a young lawyer to do. Was the water really cold? Oh, jumping into that right <laughs> out of law school? <laughs> It was really cold. Uh, it was it was it was um, very interesting. I will tell you that the first argument I ever had was at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Louis, and I got up to to begin my presentation, and I looked over and happened to notice that one of my law school classmates was there, corking <laughs> corking for one of the judges on the panel, and he looked at me as if to say, "What are you doing here, and why are you standing up?" And I thought to myself, "This is really unique." This is a really unique opportunity I'm having here, and so I, I really had a great chance to uh, to develop skills while I was there. After the Justice Department, I moved back to New Jersey, where I'm from originally, and practiced at a law firm there for about four to five years, doing a whole host of complex commercial litigations, antitrust, securities, and the like, and um, and had a great experience doing that. Uh, what I found, though, was that I really enjoyed antitrust work. And how was I going to do antitrust work 100% of the time in New Jersey, I thought? That just just didn't seem realistic. And um, frankly, out of the blue, an opportunity came from Shearing Plow Corporation, which was a pharmaceutical company based in New Jersey, which, is, which has since been acquired by Merck. But they were looking for an in-house antitrust counsel 
that would do both antitrust work and litigation. And so I jumped at that opportunity in, in the year 2000. And between the year 2000 and 2008, I did precisely that. I provided antitrust counsel to the company on a host of issues involving licensing, involving commercial operations. But I also managed a, a complex set of litigations, including uh, antitrust cases against the federal government, uh, where we actually went to trial against the Federal Trade Commission and prevailed in a very interesting case. I handled securities litigation, derivative litigation, all of, all of these issues stemming from very important issues in the life sciences space. The case we had against the federal government involving antitrust had to do with patents and the interface between intellectual property and, and competition law. The securities litigation that I had had to do with some manufacturing issues that the company was experiencing at their manufacturing plants. So I was able to really learn not only about the legal issues associated with the pharmaceutical industry, but, but the underlying issues that, that drive the operations, that drive the everyday life in a pharma company. Later on in my tenure at Shearing Plow, I was very involved with an acquisition the company was making of a European company and spent a good deal of time in Brussels in 2007 interacting with the European Commission. And I thought, boy, that's really fun stuff. I'm enjoying this and it's just different than what I've been doing. And after doing that and after the deal closed, I thought I, I need something else. This, this has brought my interests and both uh, substantively and globally. And yeah. may, I, may I interrupt really quickly? How, how did you adjust, from my perspective, the US? And there is definitely a difference in the environment of work and how you conduct the law. Was there kind of takeaways you had? Yeah, I, I mean, I, so I, I can't, I can't call myself an expert in in competition law since I haven't practiced it in about a dozen years. I, yeah. I dabble, but I was expert in, in, in the 2000s. And what I would say is that I think the difference that I experienced was that the process with the European Commission was more collaborative. It was coming to understandings of what the markets were together, coming to understandings of what the overlaps were together. And yeah. while the U.S. system is a great system, there's a slightly more adversarial bent to it. Uh, mm -hmm. I found that dealing with the Europeans, it, the, the European Commission, that we were all sort of rowing in the same direction. And that was yeah. – it, it, it took some time in, this, in the same way that European, European litigation is slightly different than American litigation, that it's just – there's a different rhythm to it. But it was eye-opening and a fantastic experience for a relatively young lawyer. Um, and after that experience, you decided, okay, I need a, a little bit of an environment change. Well, you know, it sort of had wet my appetite to the world that was slightly beyond what I was doing every day, which I love. Mm -hmm. But and yeah. I, but having had that global exposure and having had exposure to areas of law that were outside of my comfort zone, I thought this is really a great opportunity to spread my wings a little bit. And so I test the waters and ultimately ended up joining Bristol Myers Squibb Company in uh, in September of two thousand and eight. And for the last decade plus, I've been the head of global litigation and government investigations at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And we can talk about it further, but while there, really managed both people and matters that sort of ran the gamut from 
antitrust, arbitration, product liability, securities, government investigations, and all of the things that are, that a, a pharmaceutical company and a life sciences company faces in in today's enforcement environment. We're definitely going back in a couple of minutes to talk about one of the biggest cases of BMS. But before we do that, what particular interests you, especially in life sciences or in pharma? That you could easily change into a different industry and say, okay, I'm going to, to change um, the lane and just go into, I don't know, automotive defense or whatever. But what draws your intention and why did you um, proceed your career in the life sciences industry? So I will, I'll answer that in two ways. I'll answer that as a human being and I'll answer that as a lawyer. Um, okay. As, as a human being, I was, my father was a doctor. He was an internist. And so I grew up in a household where we talked about medicine and health and, mm. and doctoring all the time. My father would run out to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning, at least once a week. And so I had the utmost respect for both that profession, but also the importance that the pharmaceutical industry plays in providing health to people, obviously. And I just, to be honest with you, I felt good every day walking into the doors of both Shearing Plow and Bristol Myers Quibb because of it, because of their missions, because mm -hmm. they were they are companies, they were companies, and and case of Bristol Myers Quibb are companies whose mission is to develop medicines that that make people's lives better or and saves people's lives. So yeah. Yeah, as a as a person, as a as a husband, as a son, as as a, a father. I was proud of where I worked every day and the things that we made and the, and the contributions that the companies were making to public health and 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 to global health and uh, you know and when you and when you 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 are proud of what you do you, you're a better person as a lawyer the industry the life sciences industry and pharmaceutical industry in particular is endlessly fascinating it is a heavily regulated industry, and so lawyers are very important to the continued success. They're viewed positively as as an important part of of the team, of the leadership team, and so I felt valued in the life sciences space. And so, again, throughout my 20 years in house, was brought into along with my other legal colleagues almost all of the important issues that were facing the companies. And so it felt both good as a human being to be there, but as a lawyer to be contributing to the success of the company in the really important areas where they were where they were engaged. But then there maybe would have been another opportunity. And why didn't you go down the path of your father and just become a doctor? Why law? And maybe I can connect the question because I think it's always interesting to learn about why did you decide to go a different path? And do you have any philosophy how you provide legal advice to, to clients? So I'll, I'll take those questions one at a time. I'll say somewhat facetiously that my father had a bumper sticker that he never put on his car, but, but sat on his desk in his bedroom that said, become a doctor, support a lawyer. And I don't think he, I don't think he quite meant... Exactly, or the bumper sticker quite meant exactly what what it, how it turned out in my case, but it but it ended up literally being true for some period of time. I was fascinated by what my father did, but what I was equally fascinated by the legal environment and the challenges that people face in, involved in the legal environment. I saw a play when I was young. Henry Fonda, who was a well known actor in the 20th century, started a one man show about Clarence Darrow, and I must have seen must have seen that when I was 
eight, nine years old, and it had a tremendous impact on me um, and, and the, the work that he did on behalf of people and it stayed with me. And uh, it I always seemed sort of a, almost a direct line to what I wanted to do with my career. That being said, when I became a lawyer in the pharmaceutical industry, I had wonderful conversations with my father where he would, and he, at the end, he would say to me, why didn't you become a doctor? You've learned so much about health and medicine and, and things. Yeah. But to me, it was the best of both worlds. And from a philosophy's perspective, it's a really vague question. I, I understand, but I wanted to give it a little bit broth so you have the availability to interpret it as you would like. So, so let me go back. To, let me go back to my father again, who was probably the most influential person in my life. He was an internist, and as such, he saw patients every day, and yeah. he saw himself as somebody who they could talk to, a counselor, in addition to being a doctor, to provide guidance. And at the end of the day, he was providing a service to them, and he didn't take himself too seriously that he was a doctor. He was somebody helping another human being. And yeah. I think I think that the legal industry in the almost 30 years that I've been a part of it, I think has gone in a better direction of sort of seeing itself as pro- simply a professional class to being a service provider. And I think in particular, having been an in-house lawyer for 20 years, where I literally lived with my client during the day, um, I saw myself as a service provider. I was there to help to service a client, to provide counsel to a client along the way, uh, understanding that what the service I was providing was just one of many services or one of many voices that the client was ultimately hearing, but an important one. And so I think it's important as I evolve from an in-house lawyer to a a lawyer working at Hogan Lovells uh, with multiple clients to remind myself that I'm helping other people, I'm helping clients as you know, pr- providing a service to them and to partner with them, and so that's that's my goal. It's not simply to provide advice, but to partner and and counsel the the uh, companies and people who I interact with. That's an interesting view. That changed in the law environment, definitely. I think it's a very uh, that's a very positive development. I think, in particular, I think clients, in my experience, as both a a lawyer and as a client receiving that service, I deeply appreciated that because I. The lawyer who I wanted to work with on the outside when I was inside was somebody who cared about me and my company as much as I did. And I wanted to feel that that level of partnership and that level of service that was being offered. I would say, and I don't want to get as marketing in this conversation, is, but I, I think that's the experience um, and the feedback I received over the interviews and the various conversations that I had so far, but that this is the more the common view we have over here at Hogan Robles. Absolutely. But coming back a little bit to your work in-house and the years you worked as the in-house lower, is there a particular case or a particular project which stuck with you? I said, I'm really proud about that. And this is one of my biggest milestones in my career. So this is asking which which is your favorite child, but uh, but I, so I love all- don't give me don't give me the lawyer answer. This is all confidential. So there were things, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. No, no, no. <laughs> anything that I would so anything I would I would tell you is public. And so, but before I answer your question, let me step back. I think that there are there are several achievements and milestones that I can think of, but what what I will tell you 
is that as an in-house lawyer living with my clients day to day, the most successful thing you can do is to prevent your client from having litigation in the, or an investigation in the first place. That's mm-hmm. that's that's the, the goal to be achieved, and it's it's hard, both from a metric standpoint. And your litigator, right? It's <laughs> an interesting point of view. <laughs> it, it is, but I think but I think the clients value that. I think the clients yeah, value sure. the 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 yeah. lawyer, the litigator, who's who's not just a litigator, but is a partner and is saying to you, this is how you can avoid the conflict. This is how you can avoid the investigation. And I think that's that's very important, particularly in the life sciences industry where, I mean, as, as I mentioned before, they're about developing medicine to save people's lives and make people's lives better. And the less yeah. distraction they have from that, the, the more the, the more successful they can be in achieving the goals that are good for good for all of us. Um, but to get back to your question, there are any number of trials that we legal litigation trials that we yeah. had and that we were successful in. And I feel very proud of the work that was done uh, over the years, over my 20 years. We've had a, a number of, of great successes. The one in particular that I would point to has to do with a multi-district litigation involving a drug called Plavix that had any number of product liability cases, several False Claims Act cases, several state attorneys general's cases. And these cases lasted for for many years and, and were handled very successfully over the years. But what I would point to in particular is that in one of the pieces of litigation involving Plavix, in California, we raised a very important issue having to do with the question of personal jurisdiction, particularly involving mass torts, where multiple, mm-hmm. in a case where multiple plaintiffs from states all around the country, not very few from California, filed lawsuits against Bristol Myers Squibb and Sanofi in California, neither of which have a principal place of business or are incorporated in yeah. California. And I think my counsel and I recognized the importance of that issue early on and were able to propel it. We were unsuccessful in both the California State Court, California Court of Appeal, and then the California Supreme Court. But we lost in the California Supreme Court four to three. And I think at the time it was a pretty controversial decision. And we started to speak to really excellent, best in the country Supreme Court practitioners, and mm-hmm. we we went with the the person who I think is the the, the best Supreme Court practitioner in practicing in the United States, who is Neil Katyal, who happens to be a, my partner now at Hogan Lovells. And Neil took the case, filed a cert petition, had the cert petition accepted by the Supreme Court, and then ultimately we prevailed eight to one uh, with Neil presenting just a fabulous argument in the Supreme Court, and just couldn't have been happier, more excited about the outcome, but also more in awe of the work that Neil and the Hogan Lovells team did. So this is a a nice conflation of one of the highlights of my career in this Supreme Court success, but also working with the great people at Hogan Lovells while I was still at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And as a postscript, that decision has had a ripple effect throughout the legal industry, and in particular in the, the mass tort setting, and I think that it, it it continues to have ripple effects today. That's a really good highlight. It, it was a great highlight, and if you don't mind, I'll tell you a story that made me feel good about my profession. And That's why we're here. 
<laughs> and the judicial and the judicial branch at a time when some of the other branches of government seem to be mildly dysfunctional. I was in the Supreme Court to hear Neil present argument. I was sitting next to several of my colleagues from Bristol Myers Squibb. A woman turned to me to my left, who I didn't know, and said, well, what brings you here today, sir? And I said to her, well, I'm the head of litigation at Bristol Myers Squibb, and the first case on the calendar is from Bristol, is involving Bristol Myers. She turns to her husband sitting next to her and says, this man is a head of litigation at Bristol Myers Squibb. He turns and looks at me and he says, I'm judge so-and-so. I wrote the opinion against you in the California Court of Appeal, and sitting to my left is, is the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, who wrote the dissenting opinion in your favor in the California mm-hmm. Supreme Court decision. And they had come there on their own dime to see what the outcome was of the work that they had put into this as well. And it made me feel so good about what we do every day and the fact that our our judiciary takes things as seriously as they do and cares in a very personal way. So that was... It, it, in addition to being there and winning, that was a secondary highlight for me. That's interesting. And did you have the chance to talk to them afterwards? I did not. Sadly and tragically, the gentleman to my left passed away within the intervening months between the oral argument and the Supreme Court decision being decided in June of 2017. But we, we had wonderful conversations, frankly, before the case began and before the oral argument was presented and it was clear to me that they cared about the law and cared about being intellectually honest, whether or not we agreed on the ultimate outcome or the way of getting there. But they were, they were committed to the law and to the judiciary. That is a good story. Heading over a little bit, we already talked about the philosophy behind your work, and now you showcased it and shared the experience you had. When you take a look back and you take a step back from the career and the work you've done, when you would have the chance to start over, would you change anything? Or do you, when you talk to your junior, junior lawyer, <laughs> when you have the chance to talk to the junior lawyer, what advice would you give them? So the, I think those are two different questions. And if I could talk to John Wasserman circa 1992, I think what I would tell him is that litigation may be what you have decided you want to do with your career. But for other human beings who are not lawyers, are not litigators, this is not their life. And you should understand that when they are thrust into litigation or worse, thrust into investigations, that has a real impact on their lives. And it's not, it's not just an intellectual exercise that the people you're dealing with, their fortunes are at stake, their companies are at stake, their products are at stake. Potentially. Yeah. And so, and, and, uh, you know, again, I think it was most acute where I was living with clients as an in-house lawyer who were being asked to testify at depositions and other fora mm-hmm. and learning perhaps too late in my career that what we do every day in terms of taking or defending depositions and we think is a perfectly normal thing to do each day is not what other per- other people do and yeah. not what other people are used to and having a sense of the human toll that litigation can have on people i think would make would have made me earlier on a much more empathetic and compassionate and therefore better lawyer so that's one thing I would also say that, as I mentioned before, if I understood sooner that the legal profession is a service profession, I think I would have been both a better lawyer 
and a better counselor. Uh, I did learn, I have learned that, and I continue to learn that every day. And what I would say, you asked about junior lawyers. I think the most important thing that I can, I can tell a junior lawyer, um, I have a, I have a son who is 22 years old and would like to be a lawyer someday. And so I tell him this all the time. Um, (laughs) No, 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 no. I, I, I think if you, I think if you feel like it's your calling, it's going to be a great thing, and and uh, I'm excited for him and for his prospects. But the two things that I think make really fantastic junior lawyers and therefore better lawyers down the road, they have two skills. One is intellectual curiosity. Just mm-hmm. wonder about everything. Don't don't take anything at face value. Ask questions. Research. Think about. Yeah you know, what's in front of you. And secondly, and maybe relatedly, how do you make yourself indispensable to the people around you, whether that's a mid-level associate, senior associate, junior partner or partner, or your client? Um, I I can tell you from experience that when I first joined Shearing Plow, there was a young lawyer from another law firm who used to come up every week from Washington, D.C. in a matter that I was managing. And every time he would come up, he would stay in the office and look through boxes and boxes and boxes of regulatory documents. And that matter ultimately went to trial. And as a second or third year associate, this young man put on our expert, our regulatory expert, and did the cross-examination of the other side's regulatory expert because he had made himself so indispensable to the team and the regulatory issue itself had become so important to the success of our case. And so it, it really highlighted for me the importance of doing that kind of work and understanding where you can provide value. And to end the conversation about your past and your journey till you became a partner at Hogan Lovells, may I ask what was your decision behind, okay, I want to I step out and I want to serve multiple clients and I want to step into the role of a partner at Hogan Lovells? In my thinking, I wanted to serve multiple clients and I, to take the evolved lawyer that I'd become after 20 years as an in-house lawyer and taking the knowledge that I learned both from a substantive standpoint, both from an industry standpoint, but also from the standpoint of somebody who has been the client and understands what that means and understands what clients are looking for that may be different than what outside law firms want to provide or or instinctively provide. And so I think I I thought that there was an important value that that could bring to clients. And But when I was looking for firms, at firms, I was looking for firms that I thought modeled the behaviors that I thought were important to clients that I've already described and and had a platform that was suited for the life sciences industry. And and Hogan Lovells had both in spades. And and so it was those two factors plus the other other human beings who I've met at at Hogan Lovells who I think of as great lawyers but as great people over the years as well really sort of solidified my decision and one with, which that makes me happy two and a half months into my tenure here. And especially in such challenging time as Corona, getting on board in such a huge law firm with a, such a broad of expertise, especially in the industry group is quite challenging. But from my perspective, I feel like you arrived and you seem to be happy. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
No, Julius, it's, 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 it, it certainly pre- presents its own set of complexities to join, yeah. to join a global law firm uh, at a time of, uh, you know, of, of, I don't want to say unprecedented, but for a century, unprecedented uh, of, of events. And, um, but my colleagues to a person have been generous and welcoming and, and I can't say enough about the, 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 the uh, introductions and the work that I've been doing with them. So thrilled to be here navigating the waters well, um, uh, with, with the help of, uh, of many. Yeah. And we already touched points on development, touch point on the pandemic, and we addressed the issue in the room. <laughs> When you take a look at the industry, and I think you have a, a little bit of a different viewing point than a lot of our partners who are working in law firms for years. So I don't want to exclude the pandemic, but the challenges we are up to, I would say like in the next 12 months, I would like to discuss it uh, really briefly, what you see and what the potential challenges are going to hit us in the next couple of months. I mean, so obviously the, the coronavirus and the pandemic are the obvious answers. And I think our all of our attentions are on that and the way in which the life sciences industry has sprung to action in an unprecedented way and in a way that will that I think will only raise the value of the industry, yeah. I hope, in the minds of, of people. But from the standpoint of what I do and what we do, I think that we're going to continue to see more of the evolution of interconnected litigations and enforcement environment, the way that it's evolved over the last 20 years. I mean, so, Julius, 20 years ago, you had a product liability case. You had a product liability case, full stop. Yeah. But beginning, I would say, maybe beginning with Baycall or Vioxx, and then in the intervening 15 years, if you had a product liability case, then perhaps your stock dropped to when, it, when it became public, the issues associated with the drug. So now you have a securities case. Maybe you have a shareholder derivative case. Maybe the state's attorneys general say, why was I reimbursing or why was my state reimbursing for that drug all those years? So suddenly you have either investigations or lawsuits brought by state AGs on consumer protection-related issues. Congress may be concerned about the issues. Um, you might have people at your company who were concerned and filed, and filed false claims at cases. And so I think we're going to be seeing more of that. We've seen that for 15 years. I think that's only going to continue. And I think it, it puts a premium on people who not only understand the how to litigate, but who can see around corners, know what's coming from a client perspective, know how to advise a client on the way both to minimize all of these parade of horribles happening, but in the event yeah. that, but in the event that these things happening, how do we how do we navigate these things together in a way that mitigates the 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 issues for the company so that the company can resolve however it's appropriate for that company to resolve. And at the same time, particularly given the importance of our industry, to continue to do the good work on behalf of, of, of the public health. I think that is a really great conclusion about the environment we see. And personally, um, I wouldn't name it challenges, but I would shift it more over to goals. Pretty sure you made yourself a plan for the next year or so, if you would mind maybe sharing that or just give us a little glimpse of what you plan for yourself. So, so my goal is to, is to partner 
with and collaborate with my new partners to 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 help their and, and our clients navigate these issues in a way that allows the client to be to understand what potentially faces them the, to figure out a way to mitigate those and to from from my personal standpoint perhaps to provide value as somebody who has on the inside lived each of these types of issues, whether it's from a product perspective, whether it's from an, a, a manufacturing perspective, and what is important for the client standpoint internally, right? What do mm-hmm. I? Need, what does a client need to address these issues with their with their business and R and D and manufacturing colleagues? How do we how do we help them? And at the same time, how do we partner both with internally at Hogan Levels, externally with our clients? to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And so to me, my goal is a combination of, of great collaboration, but in addition, providing counsel and advice in a unique client-centric way. And I think I addressed it before. That was one of the reasons why I was so eager when I saw the first introduction of you through Asher Rubin of our hat that was a mailing. I, I think it took me a good 24 hours before I reached out to you and say, <laughs> hey, John, I really would like to talk to you and I would learn about your journey and learn about what your plans are. And thank you for taking the time. But before we end, I have a particular question I ask everyone when I sit down, especially in this one-on-one interviews. And it's completely out of context of life sciences, but just to give it a little bit more personal note. So if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So I guess if I had to choose only three people, I guess I would begin with Mel Brooks, who is the comedian, movie maker, director, actor, because we need somebody at the table who can make us laugh and who can provide some levity in a, in a time of some gloominess and yeah. can find perhaps a silver lining and a, and a, and a way of of coping. I think I would add, because I'm reading a book about him and the work and his time between 1940 and 1941 during the the London Blitz, I would have Winston Churchill because we are in a crisis and nobody I've read about has handled a crisis in the way that he handled a crisis and and spoke truthfully to his people. And I would just love to learn from him his tools of crisis management, because that's what we do every day. And then lastly, uh, and I guess I would say, and and maybe it's a cliche because everyone would want to have dinner with him, but Abraham Lincoln, because again, who else lived probably the worst crisis, one of the worst crises this country ever faced and did so with humility but with and grace, but with humor as well. Uh, and he was a great lawyer. And there's some great books about the, the lawyering he did, and, and when he and when he rode the circuit. So I'd love to hear his 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 tall tales of of practicing law. Would have been interesting to have him talking to two Brits. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if. Even there is so many decades between them, there would be any tension at all. <laughs> I think it would be. I think it would be a lively conversation, to say the least, and one I think we could all benefit from today. Before we sit down, Abraham, it turns out okay. 
just by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm writing that down as a, as a guarantee. Thank you, Julius. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, that's, that's an interesting roster of people. And I think it would be a really interesting dinner. I think certainly with Churchill, I think the, the, the brandy would flow, as, as with the champagne. That's true. So it's definitely guarantee fun. Exactly. Yeah. John, thank you. Before we head out, is there anything you would like to address? And maybe you forgot something to ask or you have something in mind you would like to share? No, I think we've covered almost all of the topics. I, I guess just to reiterate what I said at the outset of our conversation, um, thank you for inviting me for this. And I'm sorry you, you I'm sorry you took as long as 24 hours to ask me to do this, and and, uh, and, I, and how excited and appreciative I am to, to be here at Hogan Levels and working with with people who every day I meet new people who I'm each and every time impressed by and excited to work with. So great to be here. I think that's the perfect ending. So thank you for taking the time, and maybe we sit down in 12 months and just give a little bit of a recap for what happened. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's it for today. If you have further questions for John, I linked his CV in the description below. As I said in the intro, we moved on to a new channel, so if you don't want to miss any new episode, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We're going to hear each other in about two weeks, so thank you for tuning in, and we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.